Warning, the following podcast may contain material that is inappropriate for listeners that are under the age of 18, are easily offended, or get annoyed listening to the rantings of holier-than-thou-know-it-alls that are anything but. Welcome back to the Anime World Order podcast. This is show number 117. Back again, slightly sooner than the interval between the last set of episodes, as promised. We are not people who are ones to break promises, except for all the promises that we make on our website, AnimeWorldOrder.com, where you can get all the previous episodes to date. Since this is 117, you can get 116, plus all the bonuses and such. If you head on over to www.AnimeWorldOrder.com, I don't know how people continually manage after all these years to get the website wrong, but they do, and I'm very disappointed in them, and they know who they are. Do they put in AWO podcast? AWA. AWOA. I don't even know where that A came from. AWO a podcast. No, no, it's not. Weird. It is, in fact, animeworldorder.com, and to their defense, it will redirect to awopodcast.com, a URL we never publicize. In any case, I am Daryl Surratt. I am Gerald Rathkolb. And I am Clarissa. And we have with us another special guest, since that seems to be the driving impetus to get us off our asses to actually record something in this modern day and age. Even though Otakon is less than a week away, I have four panels, which I'll read at the end of the show, that I should probably start working on since it's less than seven days away. But for now, our guest has not been on the show for about seven years. He was there for us in show number 14 back in 2006, but we've got him back again. Please welcome Tim Eldred. Ahoy, perverts and droogies. Droogies. <laughs> That's the old time lingo. That's the cool droogie. Well, Tim was around for the droogies. Yes. <laughs> A man living the dream. Yeah, remind folks who were not alive back when you were first on uh, in 2006 that are presumably listening now because they're seven years old and they need their R-rated sources of... Uh, animated smut. Uh, what you're all about, Tim? <laughs> well, first, I need to correct the record slightly. I did participate in a show in, I think, 2010. Was that episode lost to the annals of time? Because I know the second half of that just vanished. No, no, that was the interview with Noboru Ishiguro oh. at uh, Anime Weekend Atlanta. That's true. You oh, were in the yes. background for that one. Oh, yeah. Asking That's the better that. questions than we were. However, in terms of voice to voice, this is definitely my first time in Seven years, got the itch and decided to offer myself up again. In the time since then, I've done a lot more work in TV animation on some pretty big, high-profile TV shows like Batman, The Brave and the Bold, Spectacular Spider-Man, the Spider-Man show that came after Ultimate Spider-Man, also some uh, Young Justice, some Avengers, Earth's Mightiest Heroes, and my current job is I am one of two directors on the new Avengers Assemble, which is broadcast every Sunday morning on Disney XD. This is why you are living the dream. Every one of those shows are shows that I very much enjoy. Yeah. Terrific. I also had a lot of luck within each production itself, and I'll use uh, Brave and the Bold as an example. I was attached to one director as a storyboard artist through all three seasons. 
I started on episode one of season one and finished with the last episode of season three. And during that time, I just had the most amazing luck being in that director's rotation in getting assignments that were perfectly suited to me. For example, I got to do a Commandy episode. I got to do the Bat Manga episode, and I specifically landed the portion of it where I got to adapt the manga where Batman fought against Deathman. Yes. Oh, nice. that was such a good I episode. I remember that episode. That, that was yeah. the one that was had the like them on Scooby Doo as well, right? Yeah, yeah. Which you also have done an extensive amount of work on. Yeah, I, I have done a lot of Scooby Doo, and in fact, I did a tiny little portion of that Scooby Doo segment as well. But next to the the Bat Manga segment, that was just a bonus. But I also happened to land the episode that included Space Ghost. Ah. The director had no experience with Space Ghost, knew nothing about the character. And meanwhile, I'm chomping at the bit, Space Ghost, Space Ghost, let me do it, let me do it. And so he awarded me that portion of that episode. I'm surprised the director wasn't even aware of how most people in 2013 know of Space Ghost. Not even the original Gary Owens, Hanna-Barbera, so much as the Cartoon Network Coast to Coast -coast. talk show variant. Well, I think he was aware of that, but he hadn't seen any episodes of the original and didn't really know much about it. So he was happy to turn it over to me, and I was happy to to make it my life for about two weeks. Was the director just not alive then, or (laughs) that was just not his thing? Probably just not his thing. Uh, he's, He's quite accomplished. His name is Ben Jones. He's an active director at Warner Brothers. He's done a lot of Teen Titans and Brave and the Bold, of course. And now I believe he's doing many of their direct-to-videos I think he's he's one of their central people at the DC Nation animated unit. So. Oh, so some of the best stuff. Yeah, so he's the guy who's making the actual good usage out of all of DC's characters and such that the comics and, to a lesser extent, movie people have a little bit of a harder time figuring out. They should just uh, go to him and say, hey, what do we got to do to make a Wonder Woman be cool? And yeah. he'll answer. Mm-hmm. So, so anyway, it's interesting. All the things you've mentioned, like our listeners at this point in 2013, if they knew that you were regularly a guest at conventions, they would almost certainly turn out in much bigger quantities to hear you talk about those things than what we're going to talk about on this podcast. <laughs> since we're the Anime World Order podcast, we talk about Japanese animation and comics. And so your particular field of expertise in this uh, area is pretty wide, but we're going to focus on, I guess, one thing this time around, which uh, I'll let you introduce. Space Battleship Yamato, better known to American viewers as Star Blazers. It began in Japan in 1974, and it essentially became their answer to Star Trek. It's been rising and falling ever since then. The first 10 years of it were extremely active, Space Battleship Yamato was the biggest thing in anime, and it set the course for the rest of the industry on multiple levels. Went into hibernation for a couple of decades. Came back in other forms, like computer games, PlayStation games, books, records, all that sort of thing. And it stopped being a legacy property and came back to modern life with the debut of the movie Yamato Resurrection at the end of 2009, and that was followed by the live-action movie and now the remake series called Yamato 2199. Yeah, got to get in on that sweet, sweet nostalgia money. And that is, in fact, uh, what we'll be reviewing this episode is the, the newest Yamato series, Yamato 2199, but since we've got you here, there's been, like you said, an explosion of activity these last few years. 
Uh, when we first had you on, you were the curator for pretty much the official Star Blazers website, which was one of like the best resources for, you know, just knowledge, not just of Yamato, but, you know, the overall general animation industry in a nutshell. And that was StarBlazers.com. Unfortunately, if I go to StarBlazers.com today, it looks a little different. So maybe you can sort of guide us to what happened there. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, it goes a little farther back than that. In the mid-90s, I was working at a comic book publisher called Malibu. At the time, they were pretty big business. And while I was working there, they received a letter from a company called Voyager Entertainment. They were based in New Jersey on the East Coast. And the letter asked them if they would be interested in publishing a Star Blazers comic book. That was one of my lifetime goals. So as soon as I heard about it, I pestered all the editors there and asked them to take this on, but they had superheroes in their eyes and they weren't real interested. So they passed on it, and I used that opportunity to contact Voyager Entertainment myself, along with two friends of mine, John Ott and Bruce Lewis, and we offered to give our services to Voyager and do a comic book for them to their specifications and allow them to become a publisher. And we did that successfully for about two, three years. And then the comic book world blew up. So that ended our uh, relationship with them. But then a few years later, they got back in touch with me directly. And at that point, they were moving their entire line of Star Blazers TV episodes and Yamato movies from VHS to DVD, and they needed me to manage that for them. And that led into the founding of the website StarBlazers.com as a promotional mechanism. It went online in the summer of 2002, and I was the managing editor of it for just about exactly 10 years. During that time, I added all the content I could think of and then some. I ended up creating web comics for it, and then as my translation resources expanded, I was able to take material out of my archives and start pushing that through and turning that into coverage. I started going to Japan every year or so and collecting interviews there and meeting people and making this a comprehensive online encyclopedia for the entire Yamato universe, not just the anime, but also spinoff projects, the people who were involved in it, product reviews. And then when it came time to start covering new material in 2009, it switched over from being a completely archival website to a breaking news website. And I had never done anything like that before. It was really exciting to follow everything on a daily basis and, and report on it as it was happening. I didn't think that I would ever live long enough to see Yamato return to real time so that we could all have the same experience that the fans did back in the 70s when a new TV series would unfold or a new movie would come out and they'd get all the promotional events and all the products and everything. And now we're in that time again. It started in 2009 with Resurrection and it continued through the live action movie in 2010 and right up to today. And this is where the story of StarBlazers.com gets a little complicated because all that time it had been run by the office in New Jersey. That office was originally set up by Yoshinobu Nishizaki, the executive producer. His company name is Voyager Entertainment, and he hired a friend of his named Barry Winston to run the American operation. And it was Barry Winston who in turn hired me. So I was sort of the grandson at this point. During the year 2012, I finally made contact with the Japanese side of things. They're also called Voyager Entertainment, which leads to a little bit of confusion. But they had expressed an interest in employing me directly 
They were thinking of eliminating the American office for reasons of their own, which I still don't really understand. It's the Bandai visual, Bandai entertainment tale writ one more time. Now, yeah. just so I guess I get some perspective, was this before or after Nishizaki died? This was after. Okay. Uh, he died at the end of 2010, shortly before the live action movie opened. Oh, uh, uh, right. Although he did get to see it and apparently was very happy with it. So at least he got a, not to uh, exit on a high note, so to speak. But now the company is in the hands of his adopted son, Soji Nishizaki. And of course, anytime there's a, a turnover of management, the ripples go outward to all sorts of destinations. However, the last time I met with them directly was May of 2012, at which point they were not only encouraging me to continue my work, they were also supplying me with content. They set up some terrific interviews for me when I was in Japan during that month. After that point, I got home and I continued working on the site on my own, but nothing that I was promised actually came to fruition. I assumed that they were too busy managing 2199, and I just kind of kept on my path. But throughout the summer and fall of 2012, everything was dead silent from them. Finally, in the month of November, they put the word through to the New Jersey office that they were going to shut down the American operation entirely, and that included Starblazers.com. So at that point, I had to make a decision, either give up my life's work, which was not yet concluded, or take it to a new arena. And that's when I decided that it was time to, to pull away from the official professional side of it and go back to my fanish roots and create a fan site. And fortunately, I've been able to get a lot of help and a lot of support. It's been going very well, and it's going to be expanding very soon. It makes absolutely no sense to me to have one of the most dedicated fan sites that I know of shut down like that. Yeah, let me just contextualize this because the site isn't up anymore. I mean, a lot of people who are listening to this podcast, maybe some of you guys know about resources like Anna Pages Daily, which is run by a gentleman named Ben Ettinger. And he's uh, one of the few guys like, say, a, a Mike Tool or, you know, Tim, who we've got here, who will do what I like to call the primary research or seek out the primary sources, not just I don't know what something is. Let me check Wikipedia or do a Google search and then find something. Someone at some point has to actually seed that information and put it to the internet. That's where someone like Ben had come in because he would go and track down Japanese articles and translate them and put out information regarding, you know, scene specific things regarding who animated what. Tim, what you did for starblazers.com was even more so in that direction because, you know, you were translating publicity articles and magazines and interviews and then going and putting together extensive biographies. I know a lot of people, for example, especially in this uh, key animation or Sakuga scene, they're big fans now of a gentleman named uh, Yoshinori Kanada, who you have done, you know, your fair share of research on since he animated some key moments of the original uh, Yamato films and TV series and the like. And so your website had a treasure trove of just information regarding this sort of uh, thing. And all of it was basically decided that's all got to go because I guess it's just a difference perhaps in how Japanese coverage and media regarding anime is versus, um, you know, maybe what some people here might like. That's the only explanation I can think of, along with the fact that a couple of years ago now, at this point, Funimation did say that they had licensed 
that new Yamato movie, Resurrection, it still hasn't come out yet, but I don't know if maybe that might have been the time where they said, okay, we want to get some control over the Star Blazers thing in the U.S. and be more direct. I don't know. It just seems like it's mystifying as an outsider. It's very strange because, uh, yeah, I would totally understand it if they set up like a really big like thing for the new show. But there's just like a video there and some links to the old DVD releases mm-hmm. for Star Blazers now. So very, very upsetting. It was a terrific sight. Well, it was uh, a difficult thing to go through. I had to decide for myself where my loyalties lay. Obviously, I was not uh, welcome within the inner circle anymore, but... I hadn't really spent that much time in there anyway, so um, I decided that it was just time to, like I said before, go back to my fanish roots, which started in fanzine publishing, take all that material back and uh, reformat it, make it into the uh, the website I always wanted it to be. One other thing that I should mention is that when I was initially welcomed into the, the inner circle and communicating with the home office, one of the first things they asked me to do was remove some material. And this went back to their conflicts with Leiji Matsumoto in the early part of the decade, where uh, there was some ownership dispute. He claimed to own more of the Yamato concept than he actually did. And although that was settled amicably and made it possible for Nishizaki's company to continue, it did put a river of bad blood between Matsumoto and the Yamato camp. And so one of the first things they asked me to do was remove material in which Masamoto was stating that he had this ownership. There are several articles I, I translated from multiple sources in which he made his claim in public. And I figured it was all part of the, the historical record and, and belonged in the archive. But their concern was that if they owned a website that included this material, it could come back to bite them in some way. And I understood that from a legal standpoint. And of course, um, I wasn't in a position to refuse. So I went through with that. I turned all that material over to my friend, Mike Pinto, who published it on his website, anime.com. I was sorry to see it go because it was sort of like uh, looking up at a, a shelf and seeing all the volumes of an encyclopedia and having to remove the L volume for all time which meant it wasn't really a set of encyclopedias anymore. But the good news is, now that I've got full control over the site, I'm restoring all that material, and there will be no censorship of any kind. I should note, it's actually going to be a different URL now. Is that correct? It's going to be not starblazers.com, but something else? That's right. I founded it back in December. On the 1st of December, I went online with a website called Cosmo DNA, and the URL is our starblazers.com. That's derived from the lyrics of the Starblazers opening theme, where instead of saying Yamato in the chorus, they say our Starblazers. And it's thematic, too, because the intention of this website is to bring everything back to the world of the fans. And this is a look at a Starblazers that belongs to all of us, and hence our starblazers.com. The site has been running since December 1st of 2012, and I've updated it much more often than I used to. Starblazers.com only got an update every 60 days, and then as things got really busy, every 30 days. But uh, lately, it's been every two or three weeks, which has allowed me to keep pace uh, with a lot of new things much more rapidly. So anyway, this is still online now. Anybody who wants to see it can just type in ourstarblazers.com and go right to it. 
And what you will see is the 1.0 version of the site very soon to be replaced by the expanded 2.0 version where all the old material gets revived and put back in the public eye again. So what's currently there, just so everyone understands, is sort of just a, a stub, a placeholder that just has the latest articles since you launched the new domain. And right. the full archive is going to come online in the near future. Is that correct? My target date is August 15. And if all goes well, you'll be able to see everything that was on the old site combined with everything I've done since December. And it will be as complete as possible. Sounds great, because, I mean, I know it was just like this huge blow as far as like a loss of knowledge. It just wasn't anywhere else once the original StarBlazers.com went offline. And it, it just came down to there were times when I would want to look up information about, you know, say one of those movies. And you find very quickly that there aren't a whole lot of other websites that contain that level of knowledge that was on here. I mean, a lot of people nowadays, Wikipedia is sort of like the first destination for everything, and then maybe the Anime News Network Encyclopedia. But that's really just basic information. It doesn't really go into what was done at what stage of the game, and where did this idea come from, and who drew this, and who designed that, and what went into this particular plot decision, and all that stuff was on your site. And so for now, I, I mean, I've got like my own archive that I've happened to have on my hard drive that's, you know, a little out of date, probably by a couple of years at this point. <laughs> but, you know, I would love for more people to be able to see that because it's one of those things where if anyone were to just go onto this website and were to magically be able to read and retain even a quarter of it, they'd be incredibly well versed on not just Star Blazers or Space Battleship Yamato, but the anime industry overall, and they'd be really smart. And so a lot of times when people ask, sometimes me and more often, you know, Mike Tool and such, how do you learn all this stuff? And the answer is, you know, they, they check Japanese resources and the like. Only you have to be able to read it <laughs> to be able to do that sort of thing. And so it's limiting. So mm -hmm. the amount of places that can offer that are rare and should be, uh, should be preserved as much as possible. So I'm glad that hopefully by the time this episode comes out, if not slightly afterwards, people will be able to see it once again. Yeah. And I'd like to mention that even though the focus is on Star Blazers and Yamato, if you don't happen to be a fan of those or don't even have much of an interest in them, there's still a lot there for you, which Daryl just touched on. The most satisfying articles that I've written are, are all much more broadly based. They take everything that happened with this franchise in the 70s and view it in a broader context, say the world of book publishing or music publishing or the development of model kits that led to new companies being formed and new ways of business being explored and repeated. It's sort of like a giant Petri dish, and out of that dish came the world of anime as we know it now. And with very few exceptions, you could pick just about any show that's on the air today, and it will have some link back through history to what Yamato started in the 70s. And it's been a real pleasure to find those links and to write about them and cross-check them and, and put them all in a form that people can uh, can follow and understand. Yeah, I would say the only thing that's really missing is the ability for people to easily see the show, whether it's the original or <laughs> yep. whether it's the new one or, or, you know, you go down the line. That, to me, is part of why, outside of Anime Week in Atlanta, there's really very little footprint 
of knowledge of people that are even aware that the show exists, let alone I know it exists and I'm not into it. It's more like if you say Star Blazers or Space Battleship Yamato, they'll say, what is that? As opposed to if you were to say Gundam, most people would know what Gundam is and then say, yeah, but I'm not a fan. Mm-hmm. Whereas for Yamato, they don't even have the chance to say I'm not a fan of it. It's always yeah, I haven't been a even little... seen it. It's it's very strange how there seems to be such a disconnect with getting Yamato out there. Like uh, I mean, the last time it even ran on TV was like a really late night like Sci-Fi Channel thing or Cartoon Network thing. I seem to remember. I've never seen it on TV. Sci-Fi ran the uh, first half of the first season uh, a couple of years ago. And yeah, and that got like a 3 a.m. time slot or something very late, I seem to remember. Yeah, and it was, yeah. was time compressed, and they put two commercial breaks in it where the original only had one, and it was just a, a bad fit. Mm-hmm. And uh, now with the, the streaming, like I was really hoping that we would get some more Yamato streaming. Yeah, be it yeah, like Hulu or Netflix. Or or, or, yeah. yes. There's plenty of outlets potentially for it. Right. Yeah. It should have made that leap a long time ago, but the American office of Voyager Entertainment uh, had very little capital to run on and just a tiny little skeleton crew. So I think they only had the resources to put it out on DVD, and that was it. And then never put out subsequent editions on DVD, because certainly the entire series has been remastered over in Japan, and now we're at the point where it's on Blu-ray in Japan. Yeah. I thought it was on I Sorry. thought the episodes were on Hulu, too, but I haven't... I'll have to check that. But, yeah, because, I mean, um, like, if you want to see, like, Galaxy Express 3.9, that's all there. Or Fist of the North Star is, like, everywhere. Mm-hmm. And so it would only seem natural that Yamato would be out there somewhere. It's also strange, because I understand, like, the new show has kind of reignited a lot of interest in Japan in Yamato. Actually, yeah, it looks like Star Blazers does come up on Hulu. Okay. Oh, it's, wow. It's so... probably the original... Uh, 77 episodes. Okay, wow. So that so. sounds like the three series of it. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm wrong there. Excellent. That's the way I want to be wrong. Yeah, it's it's definitely so. I mean, it, it does exist in a form that, that people can see. But again, it's mostly there for the nostalgia set. It's not as likely to be a thing that new fans in 2013 of anime in general would want to go back and see this it's kind of like people who they grew up as a kid coming home every day to watch the show and now it's on hulu and they can go and, and check it out sort of thing and i think that sort of brings us to i guess um you know why we're here to talk about what we're we're talking about this yamato 2199 thing i guess i'll just you know use that as sort of a hard awkward segue into the review here as it were
it is true that through the power of Pachinko and Pachi Slot being able to fund many a nostalgia revival of many a project, along with the fact that there was a um, popular new movie, at some point they said, you know what, let's do pretty much, you know, a remake of the original series. I mean, it's certainly as groundbreaking as it was. It's decades in the past. I mean, it's the 70s now, and horrifying as that may seem, the 70s are about, you know, half a century in the past. And so if you go back and look at just the animation of it, the designs, the music, etc., a lot of it, it's going to seem antiquated to people. They're not going to think of it, you know, in the same way as a contemporary thing. But since so many people who are currently working in the anime industry today, they became fans of anime because of Yamato in their heyday. They said, okay, when we remake this, let's do as good a job as can possibly be done because there really isn't a whole lot you need to change about this story to make it relevant for modern audiences on the the broad, high-level side of things. I mean, we've talked mm -hmm. about the general story, Yamato, in the past, but for those who may not have been listening to us for the last seven years, I'll, you know, very briefly sort of recap the premise of it. It's the future. In the case, if you can't tell from the title 2199, it takes place in the year 2199, and the Earth has basically been devastated. You know, humans can't really live on the surface of the Earth anymore because of, you know, this... A horrible catastrophe that's befallen upon them thanks to these invading aliens that have planet bombed the Earth's surface, rendered it nearly uninhabitable. The radiation is going to kill us all until we find a, a message, I guess, from a, another alien civilization saying, hey, you know what? We've got a solution. If you go to this destination, you know, which is very far away from Earth, and um, retrieve this certain technology, you can use that to restore the planet. And so the Earth retrofits the Japanese battleship Yamato to be a spacefaring craft, to which they're going to use and equip it with some experimental technology, some alien technology that enables hyperspace travel and the like to go to uh, this faraway location, the planet Iskandar, and retrieve you know, our MacGuffin item in the Cosmo DNA or, you know, a certain, I think it changed the name slightly for 2199. The catch is, the gimmick, is that they only have a year before the existing damage to the Earth kills everybody. So they've got to go out there, get this thing, and come back in a year's time, and there's a alien armada between them and their goal. They've got one ship to do it in. And so that's basically the general overall sentiment of it that's like the two-minute version <laughs> <laughs> but you know certainly there's a, a huge history behind how this came about and uh you look at the credits and you can see like all the huge luminaries of anime who worked on the original yoshiki tomino and toyo ashida and of course the aforementioned leiji matsumoto and yoshinobu nishizaki and such i remember in one of our interviews nobody ishiguro was talking about how he had to teach the staff about science fiction because Never had science fiction and anime been animated before. Except like, for the design house. Studio Nui knew everything, and they were his best allies. Right. Yeah. Well, they were otaku, right? right. Exactly. Yeah. Well, they were maniacs, right. since I guess uh, otaku wasn't really the word. <laughs> yeah, right, maniac right. is the word they used back then. Right, because, I mean, there'd been animation like, you know, giant robots and such, but, like, actual, like, something approaching hard sci-fi had never really been done before. I'm still impressed. Like, the storyline doesn't age badly at all. Like, they're not... <laughs> 
I don't know, they're not out to, to find the groovy disco ball for to save <laughs> Earth or anything. <laughs> Thankfully, it's something that uh, works well. It's not like the Wicker Man or something. Yeah, and in terms of a uh, primer, everything Derek, uh, it, everything Daryl subscribed. Sorry, I'm I'm thinking Star You're Thinking of Star Blazers. <laughs> Star was the uh, the main guy. What Derek Surratt just described for you is the plot of the first series, which ran from 74 to 75 and was followed by many other shows and movies. But for the sake of a 2199 review, I think we have to focus entirely on the first series. Right, because this is more or less, you know, having seen the entirety of the original series myself and, and then some, as I watch 2199, I am sort of of two minds about it since it is pretty much a remake of the original show, but it's not a beat for beat remake. Like right. the, the general gist of the episodes of like, okay, they find this and they go here and then this happens. All that stuff is still there. How they actually fit those pieces together and who does what, when that's what's different. And so there are two sorts of games being played here. On one side of things, you've got the audience of people like Tim like myself, like Walter Amos and Rob Fenlon, who do panels at conventions about how is Yamato 29 a great remake or the greatest remake? And, you know, guys like Steve Harrison. And one thing I had noticed, and this was something that sort of makes me glad that the Anime World Order podcast is not timely in its commitments, is that this show is released in a very unique way. It's a 26-episode show, but it doesn't air on TV in its first run, so to speak. They know that there's money to be made on this, and they also know that the schedules and budgetary limitations of television in 2013 may not be enough to do a series with this much importance justice. If you've got to hit that deadline and cut those corners, we're starting to see this firsthand now that simulcasting exists. Even the big popular shows with the really luscious animation, they still have to really hit the nose to the grindstone and cut some corners and replace certain things with stills. And the idea is, oh, we'll fix it once it comes out in video. That's sort of the standard for Japanese animation in general now. And as Americans, we're starting to see that ourselves now that we see the Japanese broadcast version as well as the DVD version, maybe. So if Yamato 2199, they actually release the episodes theatrically first. Isn't that right, Tim? Yeah, uh, watching all this develop from the the very beginning has been a really interesting window into the world of Japanese media. To get a, a grip on that, think about Kickstarter. Working for TV in Japan is a lot like a Kickstarter campaign. By contrast, American TV is essentially funded by networks. So if you have an idea, you pitch it to a network, and if they decide to pick it up, they collect all the money it takes to, to do the production and then they air it, and then they recoup their expenses through licensing and advertising and all that. The opposite of that is a Kickstarter campaign where you go to the public and then you get them to crowdsource your project. Japanese TV works pretty much like that. If you and that's why you always see those uh, production committees, right? In the exactly. Credits. Yeah. If you want to put a TV show on uh, in Japan, you can take it to a network, but you have to pay them to run it. So it's basically like an infomercial, like those uh, mm -hmm. things late at night that are sort of promising timeshares or miraculous weight loss devices. <laughs> you know, that's paid programming to the network. They pay them for the privilege of running what appears to be a normal television show with commercials and ads and such, but it's actually just an infomercial. And effectively, every anime you see late night on TV, for the most part, is infomercials for the sake of selling you a Blu-ray or uh, something or a model kit or, or what have you. Exactly. 
So the way it happened with uh, 2199 is they wanted to put Yamato in front of the public eye again. And this had been uh, in the works for about five years before anybody actually saw anything. And they had to assemble a production committee to make it happen. It started with Voyager Entertainment, the office I talked about before. The next two major partners to sign on were Bandai to produce model kits and hopefully some toys, and Production IG to do the actual labor to get the thing put together through their subsidiary, which is called Zbeck Studio. And they also have a publishing arm, which is called Mag Garden. And so they were able to capitalize on it that way. And they had to bring in a lot of other people, too. That production committee list is pretty long. Uh, it includes um, the company that uh, publishes the music. They're called Lantis. And we've seen a few other things come and go as well. Bandai has the video rights also. And so they took the model that they had developed for Gundam Unicorn, which was to premiere it in theaters first and then sell it to video after that. Like literally have the video on sale as you exit the theater. Well, I don't think they did that with Unicorn. That was a new feature that they came up with for $21.99. They said, let's try a new thing. We know this model works. So let's see if we can get video sales going immediately rather than having a delay where it plays in a theater for a while. And then you wait for the video to show up. So what they do with, with each chunk of episodes in a $21.99 feature is they sell a limited edition Blu-ray that you can only buy in theaters. And you can only get one if you buy a movie ticket first. And so they've got you coming and going. But what they've put together, fortunately, makes you want to own it immediately after you see it on a big screen. And what makes it really interesting is that the Blu-rays come with English subtitles. And so when they come out in the public version a month or two later, they can uh, rack up some international sales as well. Yeah, that seems to be becoming a little more common is the Blu-rays for Japan having English subtitles already on them. Mm -hmm. I guess they recognize that since Region 1 is basically Japan and America and just one gigantic... They Region A, yeah. Or Region A, yeah. It's just one gigantic area. It makes sense and maybe they can get in on that reverse importation on the other side yeah the evidence that supports that is that when they put out the dvd version there are no subtitles on it ah yeah because you have to have a special machine for the dvds Mm. right dvd is region two which is different Mm -hmm. from we would need some special players to be able to bypass a region check and do what they don't want us to do which is watch their cartoon so (laughs) right yeah i mean i guess What is of note here is that the idea from what you've proposed is that the concept of running four episodes and calling them a movie in the theater means that they don't have to come out once a month. They can come out once the episodes are ready. And so it gives them a little bit more time to get the episodes actually produced in such a way that people will want to go see them, Hmm. such that, you know, the version you show in the theater basically is the version that you'd have caught on the Blu-ray, and so you could kind of have that sort of thing in place. I mean, I wonder if that time issue or if it's more of a, a money thing, because I know that some a lot of the other series that tend to be a little more expensively animated, like Ghost in the Shell, frequently basically go onto pay-per-view channels. And that's kind of become the thing instead of the, you know, direct-to-video, a lot of that stuff goes to, to pay-per-view. But I wonder then if that still has a, you know, not as flexible of a release schedule or if it's more of a they can make more money by doing it theatrically as opposed to doing pay-per-view. It's a very blurring of the lines between what's a TV show and what's a movie and what's an OVA, because even like the theatrical-length OAVs back in the day would still run in the theater to sort of drum up interest. 
And nowadays we've got things that are technically made direct to video that, you know, could never air on normal TV airing on a pay channel as well. And so, you know, we've been seeing this for the last decade and, and change. But in the case of Yamato, obviously there's a premium price placed on that limited edition, which you need your movie ticket to actually even purchase this. So it's very much a otaku dollar sort of thing. Now, Tim, you actually fly to Japan to see these movies in the theater so you can get these limited editions. Tell us about the compositional makeup of the crowd who does this that actually goes in there. Well, I have to correct you to a certain degree. I have not yet been to a theatrical showing of 2199. I'm going to be rectifying that in four weeks. Okay, I was hoping that maybe by the time this episode came out, I would have been retroactively accurate. <laughs> well, uh, we're recording this on August 3rd, and uh, my calendar says I'm flying in the air on uh, August 31st, and my first stop is going to be to, to see the final chapter, Chapter 7, in a theater. Um, I have not been to any of the previous showings, but some friends of mine have. They've reported... Some really interesting things. Most of the audience in the beginning was in their 40s. That was the audience that everyone in the production committee wanted to reach out to first. They knew that audience had to embrace the product for it to uh, to get traction and to go elsewhere. And so in the beginning, in fact, I, just, I recently translated an article from a, a producer at Production IG who, who watched this very carefully. He said that when he was in the theater lobby in Shinjuku... And here's a little side note. There's a theater in Shinjuku called the Piccadilly. And it's sort of like the testing ground. Every Yamato project has opened there. That that seems to be where all the stars come together. I guess they consider that theater their home base. Anyway, this particular producer was there on day one, show one. And when the announcement was called time to line up for the movie, almost everybody who stood up had a suit on, suit and tie. And so he knew that they had reached the audience they were aiming for, which was the original Yamato generation. And that was the audience they had to serve first, and that audience was very happy with what they had to see. And so when the next movie came out a couple of months later, they brought their kids along. Over time, the average age in the audience has gone a little lower, uh, and they sweetened the deal on their premiere day by bringing out the voice actors, and they have followings of their own of all ages. The two principal voice actors have very young fans, and so they've brought in a lot of younger people who then get hooked and come back again. So this has been quite a success story. You would think that something with this much history behind it would not be a hard sell. But so much has gone on in the intervening years that they felt they had to start over from scratch. And I think that was the right decision because now the result is when the videos come out, they sell very well. They finally did start broadcasting the series in April of this year. And it consistently lands in its top 10 and uh, usually more in its top five in the uh, the ratings for its time slot. Yeah, and it's right alongside, you know, the things that are big in Japan, like, you know, your Sazai-sans and Chibi Maruko-chans and, and One Piece and such. There's Yamato 2199 as a thing that a lot of people in Japan are watching. And the demographics breakdown, it's now you know, like 50% quote kids, you know, that are actually watching the show you know, are close to that amount. And the, the breakdown isn't just these 40, 50 year old men, as is the stereotype image of who the hell remembers Star Blazers or Yamato <laughs> in the United States. Yeah. Another thing they had going for them was they put it on uh, what they call five day, 
which means Sunday at 5 p.m. Apparently, that's a, a highly desirable time slot to break a, a new anime. That's where Full Metal Alchemist got its start, and I think uh, one or two Gundam shows. There was a lot of goodwill behind this. Just about everybody who's in charge of product design and package design and all that stuff came up through the Yamato generation, and they see it as, uh, as giving back to this thing that put them on their career path. I look at it the same way. Watching Star Blazers in, in high school made me want to get into animation, and that's where I am now. Why do you think they felt the need to start over with Star Blazers? It's like, been 50 years. Well, I'm, <laughs> I'm thinking that it's not been 50 years since any Star Blazers has come out, but I mean, it's, I guess it's been a long time since any like good Star Blazers animation has come out, right? Well, good is, uh, is a relative term, of course. Well-received, let's say. <laughs> yeah, the break was uh, from 1983 all the way to 2009. And in that time, two generations came and went, and mm-hmm. all of the standards changed for what viewers want to see today. But in terms of making this work as a franchise, they had to sell merchandising to some audience, and they decided the best one to start with was the veterans who already knew what they were getting, but wanted to see it in a new and fresh form. And they embraced it. The word of mouth caught on. And when it finally got to broadcast, it had a chance to reach out to a much bigger audience. Makes Uh, sense. Yeah, well, I mean, I think from a business perspective, it's like how you see a lot of these um, reboots now, that theoretically, the nostalgia audience is going to be there no matter what. You know, you put something out that's Star Blazers and you're going to get those people or Yamato and you're going to get those people. But if you do something that's a continuation, you only get those people versus like with the new Star Trek movies. If you make something that's starting over, that's a, a remake or completely new, then at least theoretically you can get the nostalgia audience plus new people. That's right. And the uh, the corollary to that, too, is if you only bring in the nostalgia audience, then you turn them off by something that they would not embrace. For example, if they loaded it up with designs that didn't uh, harken back to the original, or they didn't show the same respect for the original concepts, or they put in uh, inappropriate music choices or whatever, then that audience probably wouldn't come back for the second round. But fortunately, Everybody who's actually making the creative decisions is also from the same generation as that audience. And so they've got a better grip on what needs to be there. So this is sort of my question. I mean, it's a rhetorical question since I'm watching the show. And it's one of those like phony baloney Sean Hannity kind of questions that I'm about to throw at you. Obviously, like this is a show that is first meant to target the old time fans and maintain some sort of fidelity to the original. But at the same time, Things have to change to accommodate a newer generation of fans. And I know that it can't just be the visuals, which have been modernized and, and, and altered for, you know, a modern day. But there's also been, like I've been alluding to, some storyline changes. How has the old guard sort of reacted to these story changes? Because it's still basically similar things are happening, just in a different way. Do you think, is there going to be like sort of a, a divide in the fan base, kind of like Clarissa mentioned Star Trek, some of the old-time fans don't like these new Star Trek things versus the way that it used to be. Or would you say Yamato is a little closer to, say, Gundam The Origin, which is sort of the, the new retelling of the original Gundam by people who were involved in that even back then as well? Oh, it's exactly on par with The Origin. Just about everybody who's involved 
is there now because they originally saw Yamato and they grew this uh, this eternal love for this thing that, that changed their lives and they want to do right by it. I have yet to hear any negative reactions beyond just a very, very few people who don't like some of the changes that were made to the characterization. For example, the main character, Susumu Kodai, who was renamed Derek Wildstar, is a lot less uh, hot-headed now. I asked a few questions of people in Japan about this, and, and they say that there is this sort of male type that they refer to as an herbivore in Japan now. And it's, I, I guess the word we would have for it is subjugated, a subjugated male, someone whose rough edges have all been worn off. But this is apparently happening in younger age groups than it used to. And so the hot-headed, hot-blooded youth of the 70s is kind of an anachronism now. Maybe the last version of that that we saw in anime was uh, the main character uh, in Garen Lagan, uh, who who led everything until he was killed, and then all the other characters had to take over from there. So I guess it's kind of an interesting little capsule to see that that character didn't survive all the way to the end, and yet his spirit lived on through the others. Yeah, we see a similar thing in some of the negative reaction to the main character in uh, Attack on Titan, which is this other new show that's out, but the main character to that is also so- somewhat of an anachronistic sort of throwback to these uh, very driven, angry 70s sort of heroes. That are, and a lot of people, you know, they can't deal with that. That's like, oh, that's that's no good. You got to have someone who's a little more reasonable uh, right. as opposed to just irritable and, you know, pissed off. But, you know, yeah, Derek Wildstar or, you know, Susuma Kodai in the original Japanese, he did have, you know, the the sideburns and the, the red and the let's get those alien bastards kind of attitude about him. <laughs> the story ended up being how, how he matured through all those experiences. So the guy at the end of the series was very different from the guy you started with. Now, by contrast, what they're doing in 2199 is they've got a, a much stronger military structure over the ship, and everybody on board is expected to behave in a certain way. They grew up in a an environment that requires cooperation and is not tolerant at all of the kind of character Derek uh, Wildstar used to be. And so the Susumu Kodai we see in 2199 is a little more level-headed, and he's not as driven by revenge or vendetta as the original character was. So if your enjoyment of the story hinges on that particular characterization, you may not like the way this is going, because if you're looking to that character for all the cues, they're not going to be there. But to balance that out, they've added so many new characters who have so many of their own personality traits that you've got a whole new range of people to look to and to see how they react to things. It's much more of an ensemble piece than it used to be. I haven't had a chance to watch it yet, but one of the things I understand is that they've added some additional female characters, right? I would say they've added, like, it's almost half and half now, because the original series was rather infamous that there was sort of the Smurfette syndrome. There was, like, one girl... Mm -hmm. On the ship, but the crew now is almost evenly divided between guys and ladies, whether they're speaking roles or background, it seems. And there was a lot of consternation about that when they released some of the artwork and the designs for how they would look and such, because it's like, okay, are they sort of taking away the sci-fi edge by going for like the, you know, my waifu market or what's the deal? But as you watch the show, I mean, 
it almost seems like their introduction, their integration in the show is, is kind of organic. Maybe some of the lines that somebody else might have spoken originally, the equivalent of that would be delivered by another person now. Like, you know, they had a, a crazy, constantly drunk doctor in the original. <laughs> and yes. now he has um, an assistant who's, who's a nurse, mostly just there to be. So he has someone to talk to and be a foil against and so mm. you know if they've got an intelligence officer now there's two of them there's a guy and a lady and mm. you know that sort of thing and now maybe in the fighter pilots there's you know some female fighter pilots now and you know they have their own storylines going on with their backgrounds and but they didn't add like a restaurant in the ship that happens to be a maid cafe th- th- I, there yeah. is I, <laughs> you know i was like sort of wondering it's like because some of the things they did release artwork promotional artwork for was I remember like that promotional artwork so and so in a maid outfit and i'm like what yes. the fuck's a maid doing on the goddamn yamato but it was basically <laughs> like a five second joke in one episode because there was already an episode in the original series where they reached a point where it's like okay after this point our communications with earth will cease due to the, the you know the speed of light and all that sort of travel from this point on we have to sort of say our goodbye to earth and so there is a corresponding episode like that in the new one and in this one they they hold sort of a party or where they're supposed to you know quote dress up and you know one of them interprets that a little creatively and shows up in a maid outfit and everyone laughs at her and then the scene cuts to something else mm-hmm. and that's it mm-hmm. uh, so i mean i don't really feel that that's like a, a huge deviation, the fact that they've added a whole lot of other characters. It could have been, you know, it could have very easily gone a, a terrifying dark route, but it doesn't seem to have done that. I'm just not sure if that has permeated over onto the American side as opposed to the Japanese side, because hey, it's airing on TV in Japan and people can actually see it without spending their $80 a disc. Whereas we don't have that option just yet. And so for the time being right now, the perception in America is even among the people who are like on Crunchyroll and catching up with what's hot in Japan and what's out now, there's almost like no visibility of this show. Even though I am pretty confident that it would work and it would find its audience, there's no way for them to see it short of, you know, stealing it. And there's also the fact that there's the preconceived notions of, okay, Star Blazers, Yamato, this is this old hammy cornball like uh, melodrama sort of thing from the 70s that ain't gonna fly today and this is just a remake of that and so it's still gonna be like hammy cornball whatever and that's not really the case i'm finding i mean i don't want to it's hard to give a good proper analogy of like something people have seen but maybe the closest and it's not fully accurate would be like the difference between the original mobile suit gundam and the original gundam seed sort of like a similar events that lay out but you know the way that they happen is maybe a little more quote plausible than in the original but yeah anytime i try to look and see like what do people in america think about yamato 2199 that are under the age of 30 or 40 it's either i don't know what this is or i saw some promotional images of it and i don't really want to watch it or i watch an episode and i have no idea what to think <laughs> well fortunately we've we've got subtitles ready-made for us. So if you happen to be the type who gets to go to a convention and they happen to be showing it there, you can get grounded pretty quickly. The visuals are top-notch. All the science behind the story concepts is actually real now. Um, one of the, the things that made the original hard to watch if you were uh, of a certain mindset is that you've kind of got to give up your idea of real science in order to accept everything. 
But now they've addressed all of those issues, and it's even helped them to uh, write a better story in some cases. Yeah, I actually thought the most interesting addition of 2199 that wasn't in the original series sort of, like, I guess originated out of that infamous, you know, Nishizaki deciding about, you know, a third or, you know, halfway through that, you know what, I think the Gamelon should be blue. <laughs> <laughs> because the original early episodes, the Gamelon, uh, which is the name of the alien antagonistic army attacking the Earth, they were pretty much just like ordinary human beings, military-esque outfits and, you know, green spaceships. It's very, uh, Gundam-esque, you know, even though it does precede it. At some point, they were like, how about these aliens actually be aliens, and we make them blue, and they had, like, this famous shot of, you know, when the, the big leader of the army, as he's walking from one spot to another, is his skin color just changes to blue, and then it stays blue from there on. And there were some fan speculations to, you know, some atmospheric things and whatever, but they've actually made that into, like, a point of contention in this series, that the Empire is actually an, an Empire proper, that they've actually subjugated other races and brought them into the fold. So there are the, the quote, the pure blood, uh, Gamelons who are the, you know, the blue skin and that sort of stuff. And then the, the, the second class, the lower class citizens who are members of subjugated races that they've taken over that look kind of more humanoid and, mm. and such. And though they're actually subject to like a racial discrimination because of that now in the show, because they're, they're just whitey. They're not you know, blue. <laughs> mm-hmm. It reminds me of how in um, Star Trek, when they switched between the original series and the Klingons looked a certain way, and then they changed the makeup when they had better makeup in some of the later series, like a next generation. And they sort of had to come up with like an explanation in the books for why the Klingon suddenly looks completely different. Hmm. Yep, and uh, as Daryl pointed out, this uh, decision to find a justification for those two different skin colors has led to some really interesting new twists on the story. We learn in the beginning that the Gamelons who are in charge of subjugating our solar system are not purebloods. They are from a conquered race, and Hmm. they are being used as tools to conquer another race. And once you add that element to the story... It gives you a way to explore the psyche of some of these characters. And then uh, what they set up there is starting to play out in the later half of the series and in, uh, in some really interesting ways. It sounds a lot more interesting than what they did with them in the live action movie. Yeah, because there, there was a thing in the original series where it was very like the bad guys, for the most part, were unequivocally evil, except for, you know, maybe a couple of noble commanders. And there were only like a few scenes here and there where the, the heroes, uh, you know, would sort of pause and look at the devastation that they've wrought and, you know, had like a moments of contemplation of like, wow, this is bad, but we had to do it. We had no choice, you know, because they were going to blow up the earth. I feel like in 2199, it's a lot more of the Gundam Legend of Galactic Heroes style, you feel sympathy for the other side because, hey, they're backed into a corner by either corrupt or evil or whatever superiors and they're just sort of doing their job and these people have families too and these people maybe have honor as well, but they have to do this because that's what they have to do. And so there's that element of it and so you kind of feel bad that you know they have to get blown away I think that's one aspect of the show that I think really makes it more relevant to a modern audience. And we always sort of noted, I mean, especially in the case of Legend of Galactic Heroes, where everything is is subtitled with the captions, certainly the captioning started with 
you know, the original Yamato and such, and then got incredibly out of hand as Nishizaki uh, <laughs> aged over the years. But I think that for the people who know about Legend of the Galactic Heroes, which is a growing and growing online uh, segment of people, and it exploded once people were able to see the damn thing, once it had been fan subbed and made available, it really found an audience. And you know, it's not going to be as big an audience as were for it to just be online and streaming. But you know, that's a show that's got a fan base here in the United States now that's at least visible. I, I feel like a lot of those people would find something in Yamato twenty one ninety nine that it's not just as simple cut and dry Star Wars Rebels versus the Empire sort of thing. Which is not to say that it's like Star Wars. I fucking love Star Wars, but I mean, they've added some layers of complexity in uh, the cast, not just on humanity's side and the way everything is structured, but also on the side of, of, of Gamelus. And so I, I think it's worth a look. And I am just sort of amazed at just the lack of attention it gets anywhere. And so hopefully maybe some people yeah. will be inspired to check it out of course they'd have to probably do so either at a convention or extra legally maybe we can yeah, well, get hopefully uh, they figure out their stuff and get it streaming somewhere yeah because i mean crunchyroll will stream anything it might be just due to that massive group of different companies that are putting it together because i know that it must that's... be something like that because i know like didn't the revival the... like cobra and votom stuff go on crunchyroll the cobra, cobra stuff did, did. Votoms okay, didn't. But not Votoms, okay. I mean, maybe it's a similar situation to, like, if you remember going way back, like, the original Ava movies. Mm-hmm. Those were a production committee that were headed by, like, Sony and Gynax and, like, yeah. 10 or 15 different companies. And to get all of them to sign and say, The right yes, situation is, like, a nightmare. Yeah, yeah you can release this. That's It's just horrible. Mm-hmm. And so it might be a similar situation with Yamato, because that's such, like, a prized property in Japan. Well, fortunately, it's a little more streamlined. I mean, I can tell you about some recent developments there. Production IG has uh, international offices. They're taking the lead role in trying to get 2199 exported to other countries. Oh, good. Uh, that began uh, a couple of months ago with the uh, Japan Expo in Paris. Or maybe it's not in Paris. I know it's in France. But that was the first place they revealed what they are calling Star Blazers 2199. And what that means is that they have created a presentation package, which includes a dubbed version of Episode 1 in English, and it's been retitled Star Blazers 2199, and it's been shown now in, uh, in France, Anime Expo here in Los Angeles, and also the Comic-Con in San Diego. How many people actually showed up for the San Diego Comic-Con premiere of... Star Blazers 2199. Did that fill a room there? Because there's 140,000 people? Several hundred people in the room. That's the only estimate I can give you. It was a very large room, and it was packed from front to back. And that would make sense, because if there's, you know, 100,000 people there and 0.01% are interested in that, that's hundreds and hundreds of people. (laughs) On top of that, it was a last-minute addition to the Comic-Con schedule, which means that it was not promoted in any meaningful way except for a few flyers on the convention floor, and um, people had to seek it out. But that's sort of been the story of Yamato since the beginning. People have had to seek it out, at least uh, outside of Japan. And those who do seek it out, who make the effort, are rewarded handsomely for doing so. Since that Comic-Con screening, um, I've had the good luck to connect directly with BangZoom, which is the company that's uh, doing the dub, and also also marketing (laughs) it. (laughs) 
Yeah, sorry about that. And so what I've learned is that they have dubbed only the first two shows, and they're using those for marketing purposes. They do not yet have a production partner, but they're hoping to find one in the form of either a TV network or some other entity that can handle distribution. And then presumably they will start again and uh, dub the entire series. So BangZoom is the representative for production IG for this property. They seem to have the right things in mind. I've only had one meeting with them so far, but it was very positive, and they're very interested in in uh, having me on as a consultant. If they do, in fact, have you on as a consultant, I, I would sort of request that you pass along the notion that part of what made the original Star Blazers English version resonate so well with people was the the manner in which it was recorded and acted out, you know, the people who they cast and their backgrounds and such. Bang Zoom dubs are kind of notorious among anime fans because they're always very much trying to copy uh, Japanese intonation and deliveries and such in English audio such that it sounds incredibly fake uh, when I listen to most Bang Zoom performances. And that's, you know, by design, that's that's what they're going for. But the fact that, I mean, I'm going to convention after convention these last few years, and especially now that Carl Masick has passed away, History is starting to slightly be rewritten to sort of not even acknowledge that Star Blazers happened. Everyone's sort of saying that, you know, what really brought Japanese animation and awareness to everyone was Robotech, which, you know, of course, was several years later. But that's that's becoming the narrative now. And, uh, you know, Star Blazers is starting to be erased from a fashion as far as being a, a thing that made non-anime fans, people who weren't even uh, knowledgeable of this whole Japanese animation thing, aware of anime. And so I, I would like for the 2199 to be something like that in the United States. But typically, the Bang Zoom approach uh, seems very much for anime fans, already believers, so to speak, first and foremost. I would like to know your opinion of what you heard uh, as far as the quality or, you know, general performances and such of uh, those those test episodes that showed. Yeah, sure. Um, but the first thing I'd like to mention is that when you look back at the relationship between Star Blazers and Robotech, the accurate way to think of them is that Star Blazers was the pioneer and Robotech was the settler. Pioneer gets the arrows, settler gets the land. And it's the settler who writes history from that point forward. And one of the reasons that Robotech was so successful is because it had land that had already been conquered by Star Blazers. And fandom had begun to expand exponentially from what they had seen before. And so when Robotech came along, the timing was better for it. Uh, and then going back to what you had said before about the voice acting in the original, one of the things that makes it so much fun to listen to and so timeless as a result is that unless characters are doing a multi-voice, no character sounds like another character. For example... Derek Wildstar and Mark Venture, the two main characters, sound nothing alike in the original Star Blazers. In Star Blazers 2199, they sound very much alike because they're, I think, essentially the same age, probably very similar backgrounds as, as, uh, actors. But the, uh, the original actors in the original series had different backgrounds and came from different disciplines and had different timber to their voices. One of them had a slight accent, which made him really interesting to listen to and enriched the character. Generally, I don't like accents because they tend to sound phony, but in that case, it was a genuine one. 
a New York actor with a New York background, and so he had an East Coast accent, and it inhabited the character really well. So you're right. This is something that should be considered again, because if it's done right, then it helps to establish the character's identity much faster and make them more appealing and make them more memorable. I have a hard time remembering how one voice in the 2199 dub sounded different or more distinct from another because um, they were all kind of within the same age group, as far as I could tell, except for uh, Captain Okada. He sounded fantastic. And did they retain the original names or were they all once again Derek Wildstar and Mark Venture and you know, all that stuff? All the character names are preserved from the Japanese ones. However, in the initial presentation materials, they have changed the name of the ship from Yamato to Argo. Hmm. So that that was a change that was made back in um, the original Star Blazers that they said, okay, we will make mention of the fact that it's the Yamato once, and then we'll rechristen it the Argo to sort of draw a parallel to, you know, Jason and the Argonauts, Mm -hmm. as opposed to... There were justifications for doing that back in the 70s, since World War II was only 30 years ago. But now that's uh, 30 years ago from where we are right now. In fact, even more. It's it's closer to 40 years ago. So anyone who would be offended by the name Yamato, I think, is probably not with us anymore. Mm Mm-hmm. Plus, added to the fact that because of the success that Star Blazers and Robotech led to, uh, we've reached a point where name changes are no longer necessary. It used to be done for the sake of TV, but anime's uh, main uh, outlet is no longer TV. It's streaming or downloading or direct-to-video. And so the filters that used to exist for reasons that made sense back then are no longer needed now. However, um, I understand that it, that the Argo decision was made pretty high up, and that means there's going to be some work to be done to get the word up the line that this is no longer a recommended change. If for no other reason that they're going to incur a lot of confusion if they change the name to Argo in dialogue, but leave the name Yamato on the screen, and it appears on the screen all over the place. Yeah, there's a lot of English text in this series next to the Japanese. That's right. I think one of the best arguments is that, as it has been shown many, many times, if you give anime fans any reason possible to not buy something or not watch something, that they will take that reason and run. And yeah, that may not be antagonism, it's just the, the simple fact that there's a gigantic amount of product now to absorb, Yeah. and if one comes recommended over another because of something as simple as a name change, the result is pretty obvious. Right. I suppose it sort of boils down to, like, why would they still retain the name Starblazers 2199 if uh, they're not going to retrofit it to be Starblazers? Why would they not just call it Space Battleship Yamato? I think they're just going on the assumption that it's known as Star Blazers outside of Japan, and they don't really understand yet that uh, the original property has at least risen to the same level, if not eclipsed the original. But remember, the thing that drove them in the beginning with 2199 was getting traction with their original audience, mm-hmm. and I think that same mindset is probably informing the decision to call it Star Blazers again. I don't have any objection to that. I think it's, it's fine as a title. It is evocative. It will attract the attention of people who watched it as kids, and there are an awful lot of them out there. 
Yeah, it's sort of like the I difference that, between calling something Gigantor and calling something Tetsujin 28 in the United States. I mean, I think that that's not a big deal either, because anime fans are very used to the Japanese name of something and the international name of something, like uh, Attack on Titan. Yeah, like, a lot of that's people... That's the international name. It's... Um, yeah, a lot of so. people who insist on using the Japanese name, they will accept that the title has changed. But w- as long as the show itself is still the same show, people yeah. are, are okay with that at this point. I don't know, for example, if the, the amount of people who would be, say, nostalgic for, I'll throw out an example, Battle of the Planets, that would object if they were to get uh, uncut Gachamon. For science ninja team Gachaman that didn't have Seven Zark Seven and Casey Kasem in it, if they would not buy that show, I mean, I suppose they didn't when ADV released it as Gachaman. But I, I wonder if that crowd, that latent people who are still remembering Star Blazers that would want to see it, would that audience object that suddenly it wasn't Mark Venture and Derek Wildstar, it was you know Daisuke Shima and. Suzai, uh, you know, it's, it's one of those things where it's like, I grew up watching Robotech, but it's always like, first and foremost, Ben Dixon, not Kakizaki or or what have you. And and it's like, what the hell was his name? Hayao Kakizaki, you know, know, Ben Dixon, that's his name. You know, it's just like, it's like, all right, it's leader Deslock in my head. And it's like, oh no, it's, it's Deslar. Yeah, I mean, I guess that comes down to, since I don't know what an average Star Blazers fan is like, I only know guys like Tim and such who are super fans and who are completely knowledgeable of the existence of this original show. Yeah, I either know of super fans or people who are aware of it and I'll acknowledge like, yeah, that's historically important. I'm not fucking watching that shit or people who just have no idea. The only three groups that I'm aware of. I mean, I'm sure there must be people... Much yeah, like, you know, people who maybe had an awareness of Jumbo Machined or Toys, you know, back in the day that aren't really anime fans, but were that to come out, you know, under that name, they'd be like, ooh, you know, so-and-so toys are back. But mm. I don't know how large that is, uh, audience. Yeah. Well, I hope we get the chance to find out. I, ho- I hope so, too. I mean, uh, it's been sort of a concern of mine that they announced however long ago that they would start releasing you know on blu-ray and dvd the yamato resurrection uh which would presumably be a test bed to see like how well does this do and if it does well enough let's roll out with the 2199 that was a year ago it's been more than a year now and nothing not a release date not uh casting for the english versions not anything and so i'm just wondering like what the hell happened with that yeah, I don't know if it's something on the Japanese side or if Funimation is just like, let's put out more Full Metal Alchemist because that's guaranteed money. Well, I know that Funimation's got such a backlog. I mean, Roberta's yeah. Blood Trail, the Black Lagoon OAV sequel, that only just came out finally on video. And they had and announced that years ago. Years ago. Yeah. yeah. And so it might just be because Funimation is one of the only people still around that is making money well enough to be able to license things and release them here. And they do that by having a very small group of people doing that. So, mm-hmm. Well, the last time I spoke to anybody there was a little over a year and a half ago. And at that point, they still had not had a finished signed contract. And so all I can speculate is that because the chain of ownership over Yamato is so big and so complex that uh, it's just taking forever to get everybody to nod their heads at the same time. Um, it was practically a miracle at all that 2199 got made. I recall uh, translating a very short article maybe a year ago 
commending the um, executive producer at Production IG for uh, sticking it out for as long as it took to get all those licensors to agree that this was something that they should do. And that was the most difficult part of the process. After that, everything kind of fell in line, and now it's working beautifully. So I hope everyone takes the right lesson for that and gets a little more flexible because it can lead to some amazing things. Yeah, I mean, we actually saw, well, not me personally, but I mean, that live action Yamato movie did air in certain parts of the country. Like they did theatrically show it subtitled in some places. And I was thinking, oh, well, it's probably going to be released here on video. And I don't know if that ever happened. Well, that's got another handicap on it, which is sub or dub. The story goes that the lead actor in that film... Oh, yeah, he's a boy band guy, isn't he? Yeah, Takuya Kimura, or yep, Kim Ta- Smap. He's represented by the biggest sociopath in all of Japan. The Johnny's guy. <laughs> yep, Johnny's office. And when his contract was originally signed to do the movie, it stated that he could never be dubbed. Huh. In other words, the integrity of his, his performance was so important... He could never be replaced by the voice of another actor. So basically, they signed the contract to say, we never want this to be successful overseas. <laughs> it's going to be like one of those Weinstein Brothers dubs, like how they did for one of those Tony Jaa movies. I think it was Tommy Young Gooing, where they dubbed everybody else, but Tony Jaa was still retained in, in Thai with subtitles. Uh, <laughs> and and uh, yeah, predictably, well, I guess it made you know reasonable money because the Weinsteins are super cheap and cut corners like crazy. Well, since that time, the live-action movie has started uh, sort of crawling slowly around the globe. It's been released in China. It's been released commercially in Australia by a company called Madman. Oh, it's yeah. been, the release date for the UK has been announced from, I think, um, Manga somebody? Yeah, Manga UK. Manga UK, right? In all cases, they're subtitled. However, a German dub recently started making the rounds. I don't know if this is licensed or not but hmm. it does exist and he's he's been dubbed pretty well oh i left out france it did come out in france as well on home video again it was subtitled and interestingly there it is only called space battleship they took off the word yamato hmm. weird yep it didn't really have any traction in france prior to this there was no star blazers there and only the anime fans in france know about yamato at all but somebody felt that they had to take that word off of the title to get a, a mainstream audience interested. And yeah, there, there might there might be some connotations in France, or maybe there's some other company in there that will cause a fit or something. All I know is anybody who's worried about stoking the flames of World War II needs to chill the fuck out. Yeah, I would be surprised if it were even World War II related. It, it's probably just some other litigious nonsense. Yeah, I would hope that the, the World War II nonsense is done with by now. Mm-hmm. So that is where we are now. Is yep, uh, that's the state in, in 2013. I mean, uh, it seems to be doing quite well in Japan. They're finally starting. Um, I'm noticing now that uh, 2199 is doing okay. The Blu-rays of the original are coming out. I don't think all the original stuff is out on Blu-ray. I believe some of the movies still have to come out. Is that correct? Like end of this year? Series 1 came out about a year ago, and it was an amazing box set. It was curated by a guy I actually met named Ryusuke Hikawa, who was the original Yamato superfan. If you're interested in, in exploring the, the history of 
fandom back in the caveman days. It's all described at my website, and you'll get to see that again soon. Hikawa was the founding member of the first Yamato fan club back in 1974. He actually met the people who were making the show while it was still in production. He went to the studio constantly to get interviews and and see how it was going. And every time he walked out, he had a big stack of cells and, and art and scripts that they just handed over to him. Yeah, back before Carl Masek said, hey, we can sell this stuff for money. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so over the intervening years, uh, Mr. Hikawa has gone on to become a very well-known and very well-respected anime journalist and commentator. He's written tons of books. He's got very strong relationships in the big companies like Bandai. And so quite often you'll see a, a DVD extra, which features an interview with some prime creative person. And it's almost always Hikawa doing the interviewing. So when it came time to upgrade Series 1 for a, a legacy Blu-ray set, he came forward with his entire archive and digitized all of it. And it's all there as bonus features on those discs. And one of the, the really funny things about that set is that since the original aspect ratio is 3 by 4 and Blu-ray is set for widescreen, there's an option where you can actually turn on an overlay for your TV that looks like a 3 by 4 Japanese TV set from 1974. <laughs> and that becomes the frame through which you can watch the original episodes on the Blu-ray. Rather than have black bars on the left and right. Yeah, exactly. So there's that. That came out last year. This year, the movies started to come out on Blu-ray. They started with Arrivederci, which came out in the spring. It's a phenomenal transfer. And the complete storyboard of the film is also there as a bonus feature. The first Yamato movie just came out last month. That's the compilation of the first series. The next film is The New Voyage, which comes out at the end of August. So they skipped over Be Forever? No, that's coming later. Okay. Be Forever and Final Yamato are the last two in continuity. So it is going to be coming out on, in order. And what's going to be really interesting is to see how they treat those two on Blu-ray. Because the, the aspect ratio shift and Be Forever. Well, more than that, too, the DVD transfers of those two films in particular were just terrible. Oh, yeah, they suck. Yeah, really awful. Not just because they resized the screen, but also because they just had lousy masters to go from. Yeah, and those are the only, the, the only DVDs of that that are still sold to this day, and they cost like a hundred dollars. Yeah, I guess it depends on where you go to. But what's ironic about that is that the masters that were released by the U.S. office of Voyager on both VHS and DVD with hard subtitles on them look better than the masters that they've been using in Japan for all these years. So this is a golden opportunity to finally right that wrong. And I'm really looking forward to seeing how they treat it, because these these two films in particular could be absolutely amazing on Blu-ray if they're handled correctly. Yeah, I, when I a few months ago wrote my piece for the uh, golden anniversary of Anime Project and I was tasked to cover 1980, of course, uh, Be Forever Yamato came out in 1980. And so mm. I wrote you know, espousing the fact that, you know, a lot of people say that Space Runaway Ideon is the one that ends with them uh, firing a gun and blowing up the galaxy, but they're wrong. That's what happens in Be Forever Yamato. And I don't care if I just spoiled that one because it's 30 plus years ago. Statute of limitations has passed. That's right. The Death Star explodes. So, I mean, uh, it's awesome. And I was just saying, I only lament that there's no real way for anybody to see it as of the time of writing. And hopefully by the end of this year, that'll... um 
changed to some extent for people in Japan anyway. Of course, when and if any of this stuff ever makes it stateside is another question because, you know, like you said, it's been a year and change since the original came out in Blu-ray and um, Voyager in its current incarnation doesn't seem to have made any move to even try and bring out that uh, here just yet. Well, the, the good news is that they've got resources they didn't have before. Assets, I guess I should say. So when uh, that window opens, they'll be able to take full advantage of it. Of course, they lost some resources because you were involved in those uh, initial DVD production quite a bit as well, weren't you? Oh, yeah. Prior to the website, Voyager hired me to to take all of their videos from VHS to DVD, create the packaging, create the extra features and all that stuff. By the time we got to the third TV series, I was in a position to remaster the entire thing. So if you can still find that particular DVD set, it's going to look 10 times better than the old VHS version did. But we are now in the Blu-ray world, so new things need to happen. Yeah. Um, I don't need to be in a position to make them happen myself. Um, obviously, it would be a lot of fun to do that. But if the uh, if the bridge can be built across the ocean, then there's plenty of ways to take advantage of it. All right. So I guess, uh, you know, we're coming up in about 90 minutes now. So I figure I don't want to take up too much more of your time. I guess... Uh, do you have any sort of final thoughts you want to get out there about 2199? I know you haven't seen uh, the very end of it, but since it's a remake, we kind of understand what's going to happen in those last few episodes. So um, I guess I'll, I'll let you get quote the last word. <laughs> well, Chapter 6 was out last month, and it ended on a cliffhanger that nobody had ever seen before. They are roughly at the point, well, there are four episodes left to do in Japan of 2199, but... If you were to look at the original series continuity, there are up to maybe three episodes left. And characters are in a position now that they were not in before. The line to get to the ending that we know has been completely erased. So whatever happens in Chapter 7 is going to be a revelation. And that speaks to how they've, they've really succeeded over and above all the commercial aspects. What they succeeded in doing with this show was finding a way to retell that story that makes it new again. Everybody who's seen the original over and over has every scene memorized. And the last thing they needed to see was a remake that didn't give them anything else to enrich it. So for the first time in 30 years, we have no idea how this is going to end. And that's a great feeling. I really enjoy being a part of that. That's the feeling that you could have only gotten decades ago if you were part of the original generation. And... The same generation has now made a version that not only gives you a new experience while still having the familiar flavor, it doesn't take anything away from the original. So you can then go back and rewatch the original and not have it spoiled for you because it follows a different path, which is equally valid. And watching one will inform your viewing of the other. So um, my hat's off to them. They, they did a fantastic job of reviving this franchise in a way that doesn't delegitimize anything that came before it. And doesn't require that you have what came before it under your belt either. Exactly. That's the important the, part, yeah. Yeah, now the big question is where are they going to go next? In America, everybody's favorite series was the second one for a lot of obvious reasons. I know people in Japan would love for them to continue and adapt that second show. So far, the director, Yutaka Izabuchi, has only expressed an interest in doing a prequel OVA, which would be fine with me, but I think the expectation is that they have to keep going and they have to do the story that everybody wants. So we could be uh, in store for all of this again in the near future. I hope we are. All right. I so guess. basically, best possible situation. 
Um, leaving aside the fact that I'm not uh, running the official website anymore, yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, for the show, I should say. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So I guess, uh, you know, that's pretty much all we'll have to say about that. I mean, I didn't mention Yutaki Zubuchi having worked on it since, I mean, he is sort of a guy who's really skilled at doing like these really uh, informed sort of remakes and reimaginings and the design work I said had been modernized and such. And the guy who did that was Nobu Teruyuki, who we'd previously seen. Um, well, I saw him do it in Toward the Terror. No one else watched it. But, you know, he's certainly uh, skilled at taking things that are from decades past and putting a modern spin on the look of it so it doesn't look, quote, old. And so um, I don't really think that there's uh, too many of those barriers to entry as far as that goes for the new series. I think that, uh, you know, more people should check it out. I just uh, hopefully if you've been listening to this podcast, you're kind of someone who's willing to, to go that extra half step. And that if it's not on Netflix or Hulu or Crunchyroll or whatever, that you can uh, go seek those things out as you may be. But we've also gotten spoiled over these last seven years and everything's so easy that uh, I can't tell you the last time I opened up BitTorrent to download anything. Uh, maybe I'll have to do that to get clips from my panels. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> you know, uh, do, do see if you can uh, check this out. If you do see the show and you have not already seen it as you are listening to this, I'd like to hear from you. I'd like you to leave a comment on our website, which is animeworldorder.com. You can also send us an email. Our email address is animeworldorder at gmail.com. And you can get us on Twitter at animeworldorder. Get in touch with us through any of those three ways. And we'd like to know, especially if you have no prior exposure to Yamato or Star Blazers or any of that stuff, what you think of this and um, how many episodes, in your opinion, do you think someone should watch before they can sort of make a decision on where to go from this? I would say maybe about four. Would that be enough or is three? I mean, I know people are like three episode test or one episode test. I think all you need for this is the first two. By the end of the second episode, the mission is is off the ground and they're rolling. They delay really expertly lay out all the characterization and, and all the big story sweeps in those first two. It does go a little faster than the original. It's not like if you, at first when I was watching it, I was thinking if I go and look at the old episode and how many days are left versus how many days are left at the end of episode one or two of this, would it match up? And the answer is no, it doesn't quite match up because this one's, it's going at a little bit of a faster clip. Mm -hmm. And as a result, they can get a lot more story in. One of the things that's really interesting, if you're a psycho fan like I am and you know something about the ideas that didn't make it into the first series in 74, is how many of those nuggets have been pulled out of the vault and given new life. Even if it's just a, a throwaway thing, uh, it can have a direct callback to a concept that was developed but didn't make it into the anime or made it into the manga or something else. So there, there are ample rewards for all levels of fans in this. And um, I guess the last thing I should say is if you want to get up to speed on everything that's happening, uh, head on over to the website, OurStarBlazers.com. It's O-U-R, Starblazers, not H-O-U-R. Exactly. And um, what you will find is that since the very beginning of this, I've been filing monthly reports that cover every aspect of it, every product that gets released, uh, I translate every magazine article I find, and you can you can learn a hell of a lot if, if you're prepared to uh, sit down and read it all. The latest report 
was filed just a week ago as we're recording this for the, everything that happened in the month of June, and it's enormous. That was the single busiest month in the entire history of the franchise, as far as I can tell. All right. Well, thanks for being on, Tim. Uh, hope uh, we'll, we'll see you again in a few months at AWA, you know, one month even. And uh, hopefully well, there'll be more updates since I know you've got your, your panels there where you say, you know, what happened in the past year. And yep. there was certainly like a, a whole there's no shortage of stuff going on these last few years that you have to cover. So I look forward to seeing uh, all the interesting things that you found and dug up. If you do uh, happen to go to that convention, do show up to everything else that Tim does because he's got all sorts of fascinating stuff collected over the years and i'm all, i'm almost of the opinion that even though it's an anime con if you were to just do a panel that was just about the american animation that you worked on there'd probably be an even bigger turnout for that well we can we can put that to the test because i'm going to be um presenting a panel as a director of avengers assemble at that same convention yeah i mean uh it's certainly a show that unlike star blazers and the like is something that's on american television on a channel that everybody's watching at a time that everyone can see it so uh, certainly there's going to be uh, no shortage of fans of that one. So um, that'll do it for us in the Anime World Order podcast. Uh, I'll see you, I guess, next time. This is, we got, I got work to do now. <laughs>